go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly ask that as your word is opened up once more to be proclaimed, to be taught, to be expounded, Lord, we pray that the delivery and communication of its truth will not be in vain and that the hearing of it and the receiving of it will also not be in vain. But we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would kindly clothe the proclamation and the reception of your word today with great power from on high that we would be more greatly sanctified by the truth of your word and thereby fashioned even more from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ Jesus our Lord. We earnestly ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen and amen. Well, I invite you to take God's word and let's open up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. The last three weeks we have looked carefully at verse 16. And today we will finish this four-part series on making our boast in the gospel by looking at verse 17. The title to this morning's study is The Righteousness the Gospel Reveals. The Righteousness the Gospel Reveals. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16, and then reading verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of the living, eternal God. Why was Paul the Apostle not ashamed of the gospel? We have been thinking very carefully about this question over the past three weeks since it captures the immediate context of where we are in this study of Romans 1, 16 and 17. Here in this passage, Paul the Apostle did not hold back his true affections for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said very plainly, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, based on this confession, we have made it our aim to discover exactly why there were no feelings of shame, disgrace, or embarrassment which Paul felt towards the gospel. And our discovery so far has been answered in four different ways. 
In the first place, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is a powerful gospel. It is a powerful gospel. He says here in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God. This means that the gospel itself accomplishes God's redemptive purpose because it is invested with God's redemptive power. Or to say it another way, the gospel is the means by which God accomplishes salvation in those who are being saved. The gospel, therefore, is sufficient. It is sufficient as the means to bring sinners to Christ. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, God has ordained that the gospel message, which is folly or foolishness to the world, will be the vehicle through which he chooses to save sinners. So we must never come under the delusion, as I have said before in this series, that the gospel needs improvement or the gospel needs help in order for sinners to be saved. Beloved, let's be very clear about this. Our mission is simply to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its offensiveness and foolishness to the world, proclaiming it without shame, and beholding God save sinners through this sacred message. The reason for the simplicity and directness of our mission like this is due to the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is God's means of bringing sinners to salvation in Jesus Christ. In the second place, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is all about salvation. It is all about salvation. Again, here in verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for what? Salvation. For salvation. The essential primary message of the gospel is salvation. And what is this salvation about? I summarized this answer three weeks ago by saying that salvation is about deliverance, restoration and renewal, and it's centered in the glorious person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel then, when it is proclaimed, announces a promise to all sinners everywhere that by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, they can be delivered from God's wrath, which which bears upon them because of their sin and receive through Christ a new life which is no longer under the power of sin but lives and grows under the reign of grace by a spiritual union they would have in Jesus Christ himself. This is a simple summary of what the gospel means when it proclaims salvation. And for this reason, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. In the third place, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because... It is for potential believers. Potential believers. This, of course, means that the gospel is not just a message for some. It is a message for everyone. Notice in Romans 1.16 that Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not a single person in this world is to be excluded from the gospel. Why? Because all people everywhere are universally under the power of sin. Not only that, Jesus Christ is man's only hope for salvation, no matter who it is. And because all people are under sin and Christ is their only hope, then the gospel must be preached universally and without discrimination to the whole world. 
Now, just in case we miss this important mission of the gospel, I want, I want you to notice a very pertinent expression Paul uses here in verse 16. I haven't even touched on this in three weeks. I'm going to do so now. Look at what Paul says. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You notice that? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. This expression is actually clarifying Paul's usage of the word everyone. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, no one is to be excluded. Jew and Greek is a biblical couplet describing the whole world. But understanding this, we need to ask, what is meant by this expression to the Jew first? First. What is meant by that? Well, it's important at the outset of this answer to see what Paul does not say. We need to always start with the negative. What he doesn't say. He doesn't say to the Jew especially. Or to the Jew because he is a Jew and therefore of greater importance than other people. Or even to the Jew above the Greek. Paul was not a dispensationalist. None of these ideas would, would biblically fit this expression. Okay? Instead, the meaning of this expression, to the Jew first, has to do with chronology. Chronology. In other words, from a historical, systematic disclosure of God's redemptive plan, the Jews do hold a first and important place. They do. For example, when speaking to the Samaritan woman in John 4.22... Jesus himself said, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus said it. Salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? Well, this simply means that God's revelation of salvation came first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world. Therefore, as a sheer matter of history, the gospel goes first to the Jew. The Jews were the nation of people God chose for his own sovereign purpose to bring forth his plan of salvation to the rest of the world. So this plan of salvation and the preparation of it began with the Jews. Hence, when Jesus came into the world to fulfill the salvation of his people, he began his ministry first among the Jews. In fact, during our Lord's earthly ministry, he told his disciples as he was sending them out to preach the gospel, this is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Jesus said, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But this mission to the Jews first was not because they were better than the Gentiles. It is simply because this is where God chose to begin his work of saving sinners, who will eventually include people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. So then when Paul says here, to the Jew first, let's understand this as an expression that is wrapped up in a historical context of how God unfolded his plan of salvation. And quite frankly, we really will not understand the gospel if we neglect this historical preparation for it through the Jewish nation. However, the greatest point Paul is making here by saying to the Jew first and also to the Greek 
is simply to declare the gospel is for everyone. It is for everyone. So we have here another reason why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. In the fourth and final place, as we saw last week, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is for actual believers. It is for actual believers. Looking once more at Romans 1.16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God's power of salvation in the gospel is only seen and felt in everyone who believes. Or, as it reads in a more literal sense, to everyone who goes on believing. Who goes on believing. Remember, the, the verb there, believes, is translated as a present tense verb. So what, what this simply means is the gospel is for believers. It's for believers. As I said repeatedly, kept hammering it repeatedly last Sunday, as a Christian, I need the gospel every day. I need it every day. In fact, as, as you've heard me say repeatedly, as a Christian, I do not get over the gospel. I do not get over it. I do not grow beyond it. And the reason why is threefold. First, the gospel reminds us that in and of ourselves, we would never be good enough for God's acceptance, but only deserving his wrath and judgment. Second, the gospel reminds us that our sole acceptance with God and our only true righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. And lastly, the gospel always affirms the grace and love of God in Christ toward us even when we have fallen in sin and disobedience. And by these reminders and affirmations, through the gospel, we are kept from religious pride, self-righteousness, legalism, and false guilt and shame. So, for all these reasons coming out of Romans 1.16, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and for the same reasons, beloved, neither should we. Neither should we. The gospel is powerful, it is about salvation, and it is for potential and actual believers. But these are not the only reasons Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. This morning, this morning we move our study from verse 16 to verse 17, as I just mentioned, where from this passage we will glean two final reasons Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. From Romans 1.17, I want us to see that first, the gospel is God's revelation, not man's idea. And second, the gospel reveals the righteousness we need for God's acceptance. So to begin with, consider with me. The gospel is God's revelation, not man's idea. It is God's revelation, not man's idea. Reading Romans 1.17... For in it, it is the antecedent of the gospel. So in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There is one word I want us to focus on as we begin our study of this verse. It is the word translated revealed. Revealed. This term is the translation of a Greek verb, which means to uncover, to unveil, 
used here in the passive voice. We're being told that the gospel and its contents have come to us outside of ourselves. What the gospel is about and what it brings does not come from us, but from something completely outside of who we are and what we could ever come up with. It is therefore a revelation from God. It is something God has uncovered to us, which before this unveiling, we could not see or understand. Commenting on this truth about the gospel as God's revelation, James Montgomery Boyce made this observation. He said, the gospel is not something we could ever have figured out for ourselves. How could we have invented such a thing? When human beings invent religion, they either invent something that makes them self-righteous, imagining that they can save themselves by their own good works or wisdom, or they invent something that excuses their behavior so they can commit the evil they desire. The gospel produces neither. Indeed, if you really think about the message of salvation in the gospel, truly, there is no one, no one, who would ever come up with this teaching on their own. Let me give you two examples. First of all, the gospel declares all people everywhere to be in sin, unrighteous, and condemned to everlasting hell because of their rebellion against God. In other words, there's nothing in the gospel which builds man up in himself, but rather the gospel tears down any idea that man is good enough for God. Now I ask you, would anyone come up with a doctrine like that? Really? Absolutely not. <laughs> there is so much pride in all of us that we could never see ourselves in a truly bad, depraved, and unacceptable position before God. The ugly truth of our sinfulness as sinners would have to be revealed to us by God because on our own, we'll never see it. We will never see it. Second of all, the gospel declares that there's only one way to God, which is through Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to be educated to realize that the world we live in advocates that there are many ways to God. And Jesus is just one of those multiple ways. This is the mindset of the world we live in, a world which is baptized in what is called religious pluralism. And this should not surprise us because if man is left to himself and his own desires, which are all corrupted by sin then he's always going to think he can choose whatever way he wants to get to God. This is why there's so many religions in the world. That's why. I mean, you want to know, why are there so many religions in the world, what I just said? All these religions are nothing more than man's attempts, man's attempts to make his own way to God. But Christianity which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not a religion per se, but a revelation. It is a revelation. It is an announcement to the world from God himself that declares there is only one way, one way 
to a right standing with God, and that one way is Jesus Christ and him alone. No one would ever come up with that kind of a message. No one. This is why the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word, of the, God, the word of the cross, which is shorthand for the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing. It is folly to those who are perishing. To unbelievers, the gospel is nonsensical. It is nonsensical. This takes me back several years ago. I've told this story before, though some of you here perhaps have never heard this, but I remember when I was at one time working security in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was on the graveyard shift. And at that time, I was also in seminary. So my employers, they were very gracious to me. They allowed me to bring my books with me. It was the greatest job. I could sit there and read all day. You know, my whole shift, I could read, look at the camera. Okay, all's good, read, you know. Um, but at this particular site, it was myself, a couple other people, and one of the persons was this young woman who was, she was obviously working for that particular company. I was, I was contract. But she, she came through the room where I was, and she saw me reading, and she asked me the question that I always was asked when I did this work. What are you reading? I was like, I am so glad you asked me, you know. It just opened up the door for me to talk to this person about the gospel. Well, I explained the gospel to this woman, laid it out to her, all of it. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. And her first response, I'm not exaggerating, her first response to me was, that is the craziest and most stupid thing I've ever heard. She was so serious and sincere. And you know what's interesting is she wasn't trying to be offensive. I mean, this was her, you know, gut heart reaction. That is the most stupid and craziest thing I've ever heard. And here was my response to her when she said that. I said, why, thank you. Thank you for that response. You've disproved the truth of the Bible. She said, what do you mean? Because this poor, this, this poor girl had never read a Bible. Okay. She was from California. That's all I need to say. She didn't even know who Noah was. Okay. Adam and Eve. She was, I mean, she was that clueless. But I opened up the scripture and I read the text I just read to you. 1 Corinthians 1.18. I said, you have just proven the truth of what this says. I said, because this verse is about you. You have just said to me, the gospel is totally moronic, it's nonsensical, it makes no sense to me. And she agreed. <laughs> she agreed. Of course, from that point on, I kept talking to her about the gospel. And I, would, I bought her a Bible, gave her some other books, being the good Reformed Baptist that I am, books, 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 books. 
You know, you gotta have you gotta have more books. You gotta read. Become a reader. <sighs> but to unbelievers, to unbelievers, the gospel doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all to the natural sinful mind. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the same truth is expounded even further when we're told this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This passage in 1 Corinthians 2.14 explains to us the ultimate reason sinners reject the gospel. And their rejection is twofold. On the one hand, they will not accept the gospel, thus their rejection is a moral rejection. On the other hand, they cannot accept the gospel, thus their rejection is a matter of moral inability. So when it comes to the gospel, a sinner left to himself will not receive it because he cannot receive it, and he cannot receive it because he will not receive it. Therefore, to tell sinners they are sinners and in need of salvation from a Savior who is both God and man, who came into this world to live and die in the place of sinners in order to bring them to God, and after his death on the cross, he raised himself from the dead, and thus he is a living Savior who really saves sinners, to declare unashamedly, that message to people in this world, I assure you that apart from God opening their minds, apart from God opening their hearts to receive the gospel, they will look at you and think or say, that is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. So then we must understand that the gospel is a revelation. It is a revelation from God, not an idea of man. This is God's message. His message of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel, therefore, is revealed to man from God. Now, according to Romans 1.17, Paul delights to show us a very specific life-transforming truth which is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our next important point in our study. The gospel reveals the righteousness we need for God's acceptance. The gospel reveals the righteousness we need for God's acceptance. Look, look again at Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. There are two questions I want to raise in light of this verse so we can really understand what Paul is mainly emphasizing here. First, what is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel? What is this? Well, let's begin by first seeing what it is not. Remember, we start with the negatives. So when Paul refers to the righteousness of God here in Romans 1.17, he's not talking about God's righteousness as God's attribute, God's own attribute. Now, God is, of course, righteous. Everything he does is morally perfect, just, and good because he himself is morally perfect, just, and good. However, that is not the righteousness of God Paul is meaning here. 
So what then does Paul mean by the righteousness of God which is revealed in the gospel? The righteousness of God which the gospel reveals is a righteousness that comes from God provided for the sinner he saves. So it is a righteousness which God will accept in our behalf. This means that this righteousness is in perfect conformity to God's law which is his standard of moral perfection. Now, think about this. My greatest need as a fallen, guilty, hell-bound sinner, my greatest need is to be made right with God. That is my greatest need. To meet with God's approval, favor, and acceptance, this is my greatest need. It's your greatest need. However, on my own, left up to me, I will never, ever be able to meet God's standard and be accepted by him. Never. This is why we're told in Romans 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Isaiah 64, verse 6, God's indictment on all of our righteousness is that it is nothing but filthy rags in his sight. Now, all three of these verses make it plain and clear that no one, no one is able to meet God's approval or acceptance by what they do. None of us can. We are polluted. We are corrupted by nature as sinners. And thus, no matter how good we may think we are in the eyes of man, yet in the eyes of a holy God who sees all things as they really are in truth, we are unrighteous in both who we are and what we do. But God, but God, in his mercy, in his love, in his grace, provides for us what we could never provide for ourselves. It is a righteousness he will accept. And the provision of this righteousness would come to us by the person and work of Jesus Christ the Lord. Through Christ, through Christ alone, we are given a righteousness God will accept and approve. Explaining this truth, Martin Lloyd-Jones once made these very important and very helpful comments, and I'm going to quote the doctor here at length because this is just so good. Listen to this. The gospel tells us of a righteousness from God, a righteousness provided by God in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it happens in this way. The Lord Jesus Christ has satisfied the law of God on our behalf perfectly and in every sense. He was made of a woman, you remember, made under the law, and having thus been made under the law, he rendered a perfect obedience to the law. He kept it in every jot and tittle. He failed in no respect. He fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he has dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin and upon all sins. He took your guilt and mine upon himself, and he bore its punishment. 
The penalty of the law was meted out upon him, and so he, was, he has honored the law completely, positively and negatively, actively and passively. There is nothing further the law can demand. He satisfied it all. And what the gospel announces is that God sent him to do that. And God's way of salvation is that he now gives to us who believes in Christ the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. He imputes it to us. That is the term which means that he puts it to our account. He puts to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. First of all, God cancels our debts because Christ has paid them. So the book is canceled and cleared on that side. Then positively, he puts all the perfection and righteousness of Christ to my account and thus clothed and robed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I stand in the presence of God. That is what the apostle means when he says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. This righteousness that God has prepared and gives us in and through Christ, that is the whole message of the gospel. I could just give the benediction there. We could all go home. That is so powerful. You see, that's why the gospel is good news. That's why it's good news. Right there. So think long and hard about this. Without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, okay? Without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we stand in the presence of God under wrath and condemnation. Without the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have no hope apart from Christ and what he has done in our behalf. No hope. The great hymn writer Horatius Bonar understood this, which is why he once wrote, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. In other words, left up to me, there is nothing, nothing I can do to make myself right with God. Nothing. Well then, how can I be made right with God? Horatius Bonar continues, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. So if we're to be made right with God, then it can only be by what God provides, which is through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel reveals. And according to Romans 1.17, it is a righteousness that comes from God himself. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 really sums this point up like no other passage in all the Bible. Listen to this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us through him by God. But there's one more question that must be raised according to Romans 1.17. One more question. How do we receive this righteousness which God provides and accepts? How do we receive this? Looking again to Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. To receive this righteousness God provides for sinners to be accepted by him through Christ, it can only be received by faith. Now this doesn't mean that faith is the condition of salvation or what determines salvation. Rather, faith is simply the instrument by which we receive salvation and thus the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me say it another way. Faith is the channel through which Salvation comes, but not the basis or reason we are saved. The reason anyone is saved is because of what Jesus Christ alone has done. That's the reason anyone is saved. Faith simply looks to Christ, simply looks to Christ and embraces him and trusts in all that he has accomplished for salvation. Therefore, Paul says here in Romans 1.17, that the righteousness God provides for salvation is manifested, look at what he says, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, the key statement here is this quotation from the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. This statement is actually the clarification for Paul's expression, from faith for faith. What that expression means is what Habakkuk 2 and verse 4 says. The righteous shall live by faith. So then, those sinners whom God accepts and declares righteous by providing for them a righteousness that he approves manifest this work of salvation through a life which is lived by faith. Hence, the righteous, the righteous shall live. They shall live by faith. We're not looking to ourselves for anything we could do or would do. Nor are we looking at what we are. But we are looking only at Jesus Christ and trusting only in his righteousness. Thus, the righteous, that is those whom God declares righteousness, righteous by the righteousness of his son, the righteous shall live by faith. And this faith which receives the righteousness God provides and accepts, is actually, as the scripture tells us, it is a gift of God's grace. It does not come from us, but comes to us by God's grace through Jesus Christ. For this reason, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Not all have faith. Not all have faith. The reason for this is due to the fact that the faith which receives Christ and his salvation is a supernatural work of God. Ephesians 2.8 says very plainly, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, 
this which can be either the antecedent of faith or it can be the antecedent of the entire sentence for by grace you have been saved through faith. Either way, same point is being made. Paul says, and this is not your own doing. This does not come out of you. That's the more literal rendering from the Greek. This does not come out of you. It is the gift of God. So from the beginning to end, at no point can any sinner whom God has saved take any credit for their salvation. It is all of God's doing through his son, Jesus Christ, alone. Well, in closing our study, let me ask you one final time. Why was Paul the apostle not ashamed of the gospel? Based on Romans chapter 1, 16, 17, Paul made his boast in the gospel because it is a powerful gospel. It is all about salvation. It is for potential and actual believers. And as we have just seen this morning, the gospel is God's revelation, not man's idea, and it reveals the righteousness we need for God's acceptance. But the most important question that I can raise this morning in light of everything we have gleaned from Romans 1.17 is this, and it is my favorite question. What confidence do you have that God accepts you? What confidence do you have that God accepts you? Are you looking to yourself? Are you hoping in all that you have done and could do as the basis for God's acceptance? Is that what you're counting on? Understand this, beloved. You may be accepted in the eyes of man as good and even righteous, but God sees you for what you really are in truth. A sinner who is unrighteous and without any hope of saving yourself and making yourself acceptable before God. If you're trusting in what you can do for God's acceptance, you might as well climb to the moon on a rope of sand, as George Whitfield famously said. Your works, your deeds will never gain the acceptance of God. Never. So wherein can a sinner have true confidence that God accepts him? Where is it? That confidence can only be found in Jesus Christ and in him only. Only Christ can make you acceptable before God. Only Christ has the power to bring you to God and reconcile you to God. Only Christ can cleanse you and redeem you of all your sins. Only in Jesus Christ can you be counted righteous before God. So I urge you, I urge anyone here today who is trusting in themselves for God's acceptance, turn away from yourself and turn to Jesus Christ and cast yourself on him who alone who alone can save you and make you right with Almighty God. There is no other hope but Christ alone. And that, brothers and sisters, is the very best news that any sinner can ever, ever Ever.
as Christians, even we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. As we have heard. Amen. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we express to you this morning, Lord, in the light of the teaching of your Holy Word, our deepest gratitude for the mercy and the kindness for the grace and the love that is shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, we are most thankful that we have before you the righteousness of your Son imputed to our very account, credited to us through faith in him so that the stand that we take before you, blessed Father, is a stand by which you can, in truth, declare us righteous in your sight because the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, is now our righteousness. We thank you, Holy Father, for this. And we pray, Lord, that you will not let us lose sight of this extraordinary, astonishing news that even as your people, Lord, even as your saints in Jesus Christ, we must hear we must hear it every day that the only confidence we have that you accept us, Father, is in the person and work of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In him alone, therefore, do we trust anew. In him alone do we hold all our confidence, all our hope. We look to no other but to Christ. And Father, we pray that if anyone is here today that is outside of such hope and grace and mercy who are foolishly trusting in what they can do to make themselves right with you, we plead, Lord, in their behalf, show them your grace, show them your mercy, draw them, we pray, effectually to Christ. Even this very moment, may this be the day of their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.